Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. She comes to us from the UK. Her name is Catherine Arnold with an A, C-A-T-H-A-R-I-N-E, Arnold. And she published a book in 2018, fascinating book, very timely book before this pandemic. Title of her book is Pandemic 1918, Eyewitness Accounts from the Greatest Medical Holocaust in Modern History. And we were talking in the pre-show, and it has here in the States... 818 five-star reviews. There's an audio book as well done by a very professional sounding actor with a brilliant British accent. But Catherine Arnold is, this is not her first book. She has also read or written Bedlam, London and It's Mad, 2008. Necropolis, London and It's Dead, 2008. The Sexual History of London from Roman Londinium to the Swinging City, Lust, Vice and Desire Across the Ages, published 2011. Underworld London, Crime and Punishment in the Capital City, 2012. Edward VII, The Prince of Wales and the Women He Loved, 2017. And then also uh, her newest book after Pandemic 1918 is published in 2021. Title of that is Globe, Life in Shakespeare's London. And she read English at Girton College, Cambridge, and she holds a, a further degree in psychology. She is a journalist, academic, and popular historian and was formerly, in 2018 and 19, the Sheriff of Nottingham. So that's pretty fascinating, something that goes back to the 15th century. So Catherine Arnold, thank you for agreeing to the interview. I really appreciate you uh, spending time to talk about this book. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks for asking me. So for people who may not have heard your name here in the States, can you kind of talk about, you have a long writing history. Can you talk about your background and what led you to make those steps to write this book, Pandemic 1918? Yes. Um, in the case of pandemic 1918, it was something I'd wanted to write about for the longest time. Um, when I was growing up, my parents had quite an unusual marriage. My father was a lot older than my mother, you know, like a generation older. And he always said that he had lost his own parents in the Spanish flu pandemic. And I thought this was strange. And as I grew older, I tried to get him to talk about it because after all, I was a budding historian. I thought this has got to be an interesting thing. Um, and it's an interesting part of our family story. But he was so traumatized about it, I later realized that he would not discuss it at all. And he passed on a kind of intergenerational trauma. It was as if what had happened to his own parents, who had died when he was very young, he was, he was just a, a baby, really. Um, this formed his whole life and when I started to research this book and then when I used to um, give lectures about it and talks in the days before the pandemic or pandemic when you could I encountered dozens of other people with a similar background whose families had been shaken by this unspoken and ghastly thing in a way it was similar to the holocaust in that generations were influenced by this awful way in which their predecessors had died and i think that's the secret to the fact that not many people talk about spanish flu it's only in the last 10 years or so that spanish flu studies as an academic um, school have really developed there were, the whole pandemic the whole event was subsumed with such massive horror that the generations which followed were very, very reluctant to discuss it or really to examine it in any depth. Um, so the reason I came to write about it 
in a long-winded way, was that background. It was always knowing that it was something that had affected my father's life and in a way my own life profoundly. For instance, um, on his side of the family, we had no relatives. Um, my schoolmates would be like, oh yes, my grand's coming over or I'm going to stay with my uncle, whatever. Nobody on my father's side. He was an only child, an orphan, and a whole side of his life had just disappeared. Wow, it's like an emptiness, yeah. Really yeah, so deep, deep unhappiness, although he attempted to create his own family through friends and um, through his colleagues. He had kind of an artificial family very successfully in that respect. But um, subsequently, I talked to other people who'd, who'd shared this experience, and they were the same. Um, this odd feeling that something in your life is missing, that whole side of your existence is just not there. Um, so what happened was I was discussing ideas with my agent after, I think it was Globe, because Globe, Shakespeare book was published earlier in this country than in the US. Oh, and Yeah, it's fair enough. And we came up with this idea about um, writing about the pandemic, about the Spanish flu pandemic, I should say. Um, I was very keen to do it. My agent, Andrew Loney, thought it, it held a lot of interest for people. This was in 2015, 2016. So I wrote the proposal and I was met with um, almost a wall of denial. People did not want to know about this. Publishers thought it was grim and chilling and nobody would want to read a book about a pandemic. You know, what possible interest could that hold? So um, in this country, I was published by um, an independent publisher called Michael O'Mara. And they're best known for, <clears throat> forgive me, colouring books for adults and books about Princess Diana. But to do them credit, they decided to take a chance on me. And they said, yeah, this is an interesting book. Let's publish it. Then my US publisher, um, Macmillan, uh, St. Martin's Press, um, they were very keen to do it. They were all over it. So I did get a bit of interest, but um, it by no means held the interest that you would have expected, <clears throat> considering the books I'd done before on the history of London. And I think you said like this was this turned out to be your most read or most uh, it's captured the most attention of all your other books. Is that correct? Yeah, um, and that's what's so extraordinary because it was really um, a bit off the wall by my standards. Uh, I was working in a slightly different way because my previous books, my previous history books have been London-centric. I started writing about the history of London at a time when there was an enormous appetite for books about every aspect of London's history. When I, my first book came out, um, Necropolis, uh, London and It's Dead in 2006. And when I started to research that um, years and years ago now, I was stunned that there was already an appetite for this kind of thing. I went into Waterstones in central London and there were walls and walls and walls of books about London history. So I thought, obviously, this is something people are going to love. When I started to write about Spanish flu, initially, I thought there's enough material to write about Spanish flu in London or even the UK. But um, Andrew's sort of feeling for it was it was a global thing. So I really needed to write about it from a global perspective. So that was more of a stretch. But it was interesting because 
and I think it's part of the reason it's been successful. I was able to see what was happening with Spanish flu um, on the different continents in different cultures. And that, that when I started comparing it later on with COVID was of course very illuminating. No, it's really fascinating. And it's almost like your personal story, the way the approach you took in this book is similar to your story. Personal perspective, people, you'd mentioned many famous people here in the States and the UK also, and their experiences with this pandemic, which is kind of like a one-two punch for humanity, the Great War, and then this follows on this pandemic. Um, can you talk kind of what happened back in 1918, what preceded it and what happened during this global event? Well, yes, and I think um, the one-two punch description is is very effective. Um, let's take it from there. I mean, basically, the world was already in the grip of World War One. It was in the grip of industrial warfare, the biggest war that it had ever known. Um, this war was effectively taking place on all continents, and it involved a lot of troop mobilization and movement of civilians, and so. If there was going to be a pandemic, if there was going to be a killer virus, it was only going to be sped up by the constant movement of large bodies of people around the globe. Um, the other effect of the war was that people were run down, um, their immune systems probably already damaged by deprivation, starvation, all the rest of it. Um, they were damaged, they were vulnerable, they were depressed. In, um, in the West, they were run down from lack of resources, lack of food, um, Zeppelin raids in London, um, in the US, food shortages, and total anxiety, because certainly in the West, people were losing members of their family daily to the war in one form or another. So it's, it's almost a perfect storm upon which um, a killer flu virus could predate on the population. So that was, that was some of the background kind of leading up to it. And what were the kind of symptoms that distinguished this flu from kind of other diseases or maybe even COVID? Right. Um, to start off with, and some of the doctors at the time noted this, um, the two odd things about it were um, that it attacked the young and the healthy and that it appeared in the spring and summer. Traditionally, the, flu the winter flu season is what it says on the tin. It appears in the winter and it normally picks off the vulnerable, the very old, the very young, people with pre-existing health conditions, people who, say, are suffering from cancer or other serious diseases. What was weird about this kind of flu was that it was attacking the most healthy. So um, fit young men in um, army barracks, uh, healthy pregnant young women, these were the people who were dying of it. We know now that basically it was attacking the autoimmune system the same way that um, HIV does. So the more of a defence your body puts up to this particular flu, which is the um, H1N1 virus, the worse the outcome is for you as a patient. Um, it's also worth bearing in mind that at that point, although they, the medical profession kind of understood that a virus was a thing, they didn't know very much about it. It was only really within the invention of the electron microscope in the 1930s and 40s that scientists could get a real handle on what a virus was. Um, their feeling was that it was bacterial. So um, 
they knew it was similar to the killer flus that they'd um, experienced in the past, but it was affecting people a whole different way. And of course, yes, the symptoms, the symptoms of Spanish flu were the most horrific. And I think this is one of the reasons why people did not want to remember it, because they did not want to think of their loved ones going through things like falling down in the street, vomiting, losing control of their bowels, uh, vicious nosebleeds, gasping for air. It was called air hunger because basically their lungs were filling up with pus and the oxygen deprivation meant that their skin turned blue in a condition known as heliotrope cyanosis. Um, these were all you know, hideous things and you did not want to think, for instance, of your son at the front dying of this. If he was going to die in the war, you wanted to think he died with his boots on, with a gun in his hand. So in retrospect, this was one of the things that made it so terrible and probably why my father never wanted to speak about it, because he didn't want to think of his folks dying that way. Right. So like a really terrible, and you write in your book, they're comparing it to the Black Death, 1348, mm. Great Plague, 1665. Yeah. Um, doctors, um, medical doctors um, in the US, for instance, army doctors were saying, is this a new form of plague? Is this cholera? You know, they were trying um, to find explanations for it. At the same time, they were um, trying to treat unimaginable numbers of young men whose bodies were, as one doctor said, piling up like cordwood, like firewood. Um, the hospitals, both civilian and military, were unable to cope with a number of casualties and they ran out of places to store the bodies. The poor nurses were um, worked off their feet because they were not only dealing with um, living patients, but they were, who were almost impossible. There was no cure. They were just trying to make life bearable for the patients. But they were also trying to think of, you know, how many bodies will we wash tonight and um, where are we going to store them? Right. I mean, it almost is like the Black Plague you wrote about Philadelphia having this problem. So, yeah. like, what are we going to put all these, you know, it's incredible to think that that happened at a global yeah. scale. Yeah, Philadelphia, um, they were faced with terrible problems because they did not have, have enough burial space. And like many other US cities, what they had to do was dig mass graves with, I believe they're called steam hammers. And people would just be wrapped up in a sheet and put in, which is almost medieval. It's the kind of thing that happened to the people in um, Boccaccio's Decameron in, what was it, 13th century Italy where people were buried like lasagna. Uh, but it was the only solution. You couldn't leave the bodies out and there simply wasn't enough space. So this is what had to be done. Uh, in the UK, they did have more burial space because they'd, in the 19th century, built a lot of new graveyards. Um, but even then, they often ran out of priests and um, celebrants to conduct the funerals. So what would happen in London, for instance, would be the bodies would be placed by the graves in the graveyard and then the vicar or the Catholic priest would hastily go around each of them, administer um, a final blessing, a final benediction, um, sometimes 20 or 30 at a time, and the people would then be buried. Wow, yeah, it's incredible. And you, you mm. kind of mentioned earlier this idea of information or what was happening. And it was kind of almost like today where there you said there were theories and control and suppression of information. You could talk about how that played into the pandemic of 1918. 
Well, there's, there's two ways of looking at this. Um, I mean, one of the things that developed quite early on, especially in the States, was conspiracy theories. So bearing in mind that this happened in the last year of the First World War, people didn't know it was the last year. For all they knew, it could be going on for another decade. Um, theories began to develop on the East Coast that um, Spanish flu was actually spread by the Germans. There were rumours that German subs had come up to the East Coast and left um, virus, you know, files of poison or files of virus around which people could catch. Um, people were told not to take um, Bayer aspirin because the rumours were that um, Bayer, originally being a German name, the aspirin was, was laced with um, flu in an attempt to kill the US population. None of these um, conspiracy theories ever gained any credibility, but you can see how among a desperate nation, they would, they would seize hold. Right, so it's almost like you kind of see stuff in COVID too, like you see this information control, uh, understanding these these kind of conspiracy views. And how did this, this uh, particular view, flu, get the name the Spanish flu? Um, well, flu obviously is short for influenza. Uh, it was called Spanish flu because it was really first identified in Spain. What was happening is in the last year or so of the war, um, doctors were noticing at, at the Western Front in France that more and more of the soldiers were falling ill with a particularly bad form of flu or bronchitis. And although there's an expe expectation that flu could kill, they weren't expecting troops to die in so many numbers. Um, but they had various names for it. The Germans called it Blitzkatar, which I think is wonderful. Um, the French called it La Grippe, which is an old-fashioned well, French term for flu. Um, but <clears throat> over the course of the early months of 1918, it kind of rolled through France, and then it rolled across the Pyrenees and into Spain. And the Spanish king, Alfonso XIII, contracted it. And so did many members of his court. Alfonso uh, recovered. But it meant that in the Spanish newspapers, they could talk quite openly about this new mysterious flu. Spain was neutral, um, so they could talk about this killer flu without any worries that they might be affecting the morale of their population. It was a different matter in the UK, where newspapers were instructed to suppress too much, dis dis uh, too much um, discussion of Spanish flu on the grounds that it could affect the morale of the country. Um, this was under what's called the Dora Act or Defense of the Realm, where anything that could be um, a cause of concern was suppressed by the government. However, it wasn't entirely successful because by June and July over in the UK, um, British newspapers were reporting the enormous deaths of people um, in the services and also running factories and coal mines. And obviously in the US, after a few months, you had um, that string of incredible, literally killer headlines where um, in 90 point bold announcements were made of the number of people who died that day in Chicago or Philadelphia or San Francisco. So governments were desperately trying to say, it's okay, it's not that bad, we've got it in control. And people were seeing for themselves that, um, 
everybody in their street had got it and half their street had died. Uh, it's, it's similar to the kind of peculiar balance we've had with this pandemic where governments across the world are sort of trying to reassure their populations, work with scientists. The scientists are saying one thing, the governments are saying another and some, sometimes ignore, ignoring them. Um, but I suppose the other thing to bear in mind is while all this was going on, while the newspaper headlines were out there and people were aware that people in their district, in their village, in their town were dying, they didn't have the same global perspective that we do now. You know, I can look at my phone and I can tell you that, um, you know, there's been five, five million deaths from COVID on average, or I can say um, over 800,000 deaths from COVID in the U US. Um, people living in somewhere like Hucknall in Nottinghamshire, or even the East End of London, didn't have access to that kind of detail apart from the occasional newspaper. So in, in, in some more remote areas, there was a feeling of disquiet, but I don't think anybody had any idea of just how desperate the picture was. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, no, it is incredible. And you mm. kind of talk, you actually mentioned San Francisco. They had mask protests there, right? They I mean, did. I mean, talk a little yeah. bit about that. was fascinating. Um, what happened in San Francisco was it was as as now, it's quite a progressive city. So Mayor Rolf instructed um his citizens to wear the masks. And there was even a little rhyme about um, something like, obey the laws and wear the gauze, evade the claws of septic paws, something like that. Um, but yes, and most people complied with it. If you wanted to get a ferry across the bay, um, you had to wear a mask. If you wanted to go on the, um, I think it's a tram in San Francisco, isn't it? You had to you wear- know, Cable cars. Yeah. Wear mask. Cable cars, that's it. Um, most people complied with this. Uh, they could see the virtue of it. There's even one couple, honeymooners, who said to their doctor shyly that they'd um, worn nothing else in bed for two weeks, but they'd worn their masks, which I think is so sweet. But not everybody thought it was sweet and, and not everybody was compliant. So there was this redoubtable lady called Mrs. Harrington. And she was an attorney, which was very unusual in those days. She was one of the first women to um, join the San Francisco well, Californian bar, so she was a, a lawyer. Uh, she was a suffragette, but she also claimed that um, wearing masks, being made to wear a mask was unconstitutional. And she found mask league. And at first it started to tame one, quite a genteel way at the dreamland skating rink. They all met up and they said, well, you know, I don't hold with this, I don't agree with this. Um, and there were a mixture of people, there, there were um, local socialites, there were lawyers, there were um, do-gooders of various sorts, but there were also a few rebels among them. And so at first they said, yeah, um, well, what we should do is let's get a petition together and send it to the local government. Um, let's send it to the council saying um, we want the mask, um, we want masks to be repealed, we want to have to wear them um, at our own discretion. Uh, we do not think that they should be mandatory. So people sort of went along with that. And then gradually the tone became more violent and aggressive until December um, 1918, when an improvised explosive device was sent to government offices. And it just came with a note saying, uh, 
love from John. So nobody identified themselves. But you can imagine, you know, an IED sent to a civilian office, um, pretty terrifying. Fortunately, it didn't go off. And it's just as well because it was packed with um, a clock, gunpowder, and various bits of shrapnel. So, um, you know, there were people who were prepared to kill other people because they didn't want to wear a mask. Right. So frightening, and with a number of, you know, parallels. Very much. Yeah. I mean, on social media, anti-masker, pro-masker, anti-vaxxer, pro-vaxxer, you know, a lot of these disputes are probably the same things happening in 1918, and I think you're seeing it now. It, this disease in 1918 had three successive increasingly worse waves. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, the first wave was kind of um, early spring of 1918. Second wave, roughly, although accounts of this vary, uh, summer, early autumn. And then the worst and most vicious wave was around October and November. And one of, sadly, one of the reasons that the November wave was so lethal was the armistice. So on November 11th, the armistice was signed between Britain and Germany, saying that, OK, that was it. The war was over. Germany lost. Obviously, people wanted to celebrate. So they poured into town squares everywhere that, you know, they, they poured into places like um, Times Square in New York, um, Albert Square in Manchester. Um, the armistice celebrations were responsible for setting off a lethal wave of Spanish flu. Sorry, there are things distracting me here. Right. Okay. Okay. Um, a lethal wave was triggered in New Zealand, a mixture of the armistice celebrations and troops coming back to New Zealand who'd been serving abroad. So while everybody was getting there to celebrate the fact that the war was over and they were dance, literally dancing in the streets, getting drunk, having sex in parks, all of it. While all this was going on, the lethal virus was spreading among them. So within two weeks of the armistice, the infection rates and the death rate had risen. All right, so it gets, it gets worse and worse. And one of the interesting, your approach was to really look at these individuals. You talked about Harrington and San Francisco, but you include Mary McCarthy, Steinbeck, Roosevelt, David Lloyd George, George, and their experiences. I mean, what was it like kind of trying to get that? You really have a global view. What was it like doing that research to uncover all those personal stories? I looked at all sorts of things. I looked at existing material, interviews which had already been recorded. Uh, with the cases of famous people, I thought of all the people like Lloyd George, for instance, or Mary McCarthy, who'd been around at the time. And I thought, right, I'll get hold of their biographies and I'll see if they experienced anything of it and what they said. So that led in one direction. And I went to the Imperial War Museum in London and looked through their files. And I found kind of letters home, postcards and diaries, people who'd um, served in, you know, soldiers who'd served in France, for instance, and um, written about being taken by, taken ill suddenly and having to hide in a hay barn and go through the horrors of Spanish flu all on their own for a couple of weeks before recovering, being able to rejoin their regiment. There was a lot of material out there, but I was 
also keen that I wanted to have a balance of um, ordinary people's lives, people who weren't famous, but who'd survived it. And again, I found these records at the Imperial War Museum, um, various other libraries. Uh, I was really glad that this was before the pandemic, otherwise it would have been very, very difficult to research. And of course, there are a lot of news resources online. There are a lot of old newspapers online. Um, so you only have to flick through and you'll find um, some terrible, tragic human story. Like, um, I think an Italian man in New York who completely lost it because um, a kind of mental breakdown often accompanied the symptoms of Spanish flu. And he became completely deranged and killed his family. This happened a lot, sometimes because people thought, we're all going to starve to death, what's going to happen to us? But also because the air hunger, the lack of oxygen, could bring on a form of dementia where people um, went mad, basically, and killed other people or killed themselves. So if you know what to look for, you can find it. Um, obviously, for a modern researcher writing about COVID, there is already so much material out there that it would be a question of deciding what to leave out rather than what to put in. Right. Right. And so you had all these kind of personal. So Mary McCarthy herself, she had, you found out oh, she had it really bad. Yes. She had an awful time because both her parents died. Um, her father was a bit of a, um, a weak ace feet playboy type. Well, um, it's not very PC. It's not very woke, but he was what they used to call a milk toast. Um, and he was heading back to stay with the family. And um, he contracted it. His wife contracted it. I think one or two of her siblings also died. But Mary McCarthy was then, in her memoir of a Catholic girlhood, she writes about it, she was then brought up by a rather harsh and loveless aunt, having lost her family to this, this appalling condition. Um, in fact, the best bit of her memoir is when they are um, heading east to go back to the family because her father's basically broke and useless. And it becomes obvious that the entire family is riddled with Spanish flu and the conductor wants to put the family off the train in the middle of nowhere, you know, some prairie in the middle of nowhere where they would obviously just have died. And um, Mr. McCarthy Sr., the milk toast, actually pulls a gun on him and says, you will not put us off the train. So they did make it back to, um, to his parents' house, but only just. They had to be lifted off the train and they died a couple of days later. Yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. So, she, I mean, just like whole families just wiped out uh, some survivors. And you actually include a, a piece in your book about exhuming some of like they're wanting to find out what happened back there. The modern scientists. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, yeah, there's um, a British professor called Professor John Oxford, whose life's work has been attempting to. It sounds a bit creepy, but bear with me. Um, his life's work has been attempting to exhume corpses um, to enable his team to find out what the actual DNA was in the HN1, um, 51 virus. HN1. Yeah, yeah, that killed them. Um, and unfortunately, so far, and he is in his 80s now, he's not been successful because the bodies have not been well enough preserved. So he went up to... Um, extreme north 
of Norway to look at bodies there, um, bodies of miners who'd died of Spanish flu, who perhaps could yield some useful DNA, but they'd been packed in permafrost. And so they weren't sufficiently well-preserved um, to be disgusting about it. It's like if you put a pack of sausages in the, um, in the freezer and don't freeze them properly and they come out inedible and squishy. Um, he also looked at corpses in Alaska, same result. And um, a very famous man, I'm just trying to, um, part of the, is it the Scott Pico agreement? Um, Sykes-Picot, Mark no, Sykes-Picot, Sykes yes. Yeah. He looked at the body of um, the guy from the Sykes-Picot agreement. And Mark he thought, this would, yes, this would really yield a useful um, amount of material because he'd been he'd been buried in a lead coffin. But sadly, even on this even in this case, um, there wasn't sufficient DNA material there to work with. So this is something that scientists are still um, pursuing. Right, with bio biohazard yeah. kit, hazard kits, yeah. and more, I mean, they're afraid of what's what could come out of that. A word about thirty-three minutes, Catherine. Do you mind taking just a couple of questions? No, that's fine. I'm happy to. <laughs> okay, there's one from uh, Faki. Says I read a percent of deaths related to 1982 was in part due to overuse of aspirin. Do you write about this in your book? Not in any great detail, but I am aware that that was a problem because, of course, people were taking aspirin to bring down their temperature. Um, really, the thing, the drugs you had recourse to at that time were very limited. And their doctors were saying to them, yes, take aspirin. It will bring your temperature down. You'll feel better. Of course, they didn't realize that a large amount of aspirin is likely to affect your stomach and cause um, internal bleeding. And I think this may have actually been the reason that one of the women I do write about in it um, died. Um, her name was Mabel and she already had Spanish flu, but her son was home on leave and she was determined to go to the theatre with him that night. So she took a lot of aspirin and died two days later. She may have just died of Spanish flu, but it's also that she may have hemorrhaged as a result of um, aspirin abuse. So it was a, so they were trying to to do apply some drugs to this problem. Yeah, I see. And there was another another question from Aldi hmm. says, did you cross any historical equivalents to the pandemic denier tropes we see today? Um, that's a really good question. Um, not so much a denier, but people blaming it on various things. Um, for instance, in South Africa. Uh, some members of the population blamed it on um, the fact that South Africa had not gone in with the Germans in the Boer War, that they'd, they'd fought, fought on the side of the British. This is thought to be God's wrath. Um, the black natives in South Africa blamed it on the whites and said, you know, they haven't been taking care of us. They, they brought it with us. Um, in British India, under the Raj, many Indian nationalists quite tr quite rightly felt that they'd not been well served and that um, Indians had not been looked after or cared for correctly. And um, one of the nationalists in a, a newspaper at the time said, you know, they, they treat us, they leave us to die like rats. So you could hardly be surprised when um, a couple of decade, decades later, 
Indian nationalism appeared. So um, there are a number of um, sort of blame games going on. One of the most horrific was um, parts of Russia and Poland where that tired old trope, they blamed the Spanish flu on the Jews, um, thereby opening up an ex that already existing damaging anti-Semitic um, tendency. The pogroms were already happening, but kind of opening it up towards um, the Holocaust a couple of um, decades later. People were trying to find an explanation. You know, they, they couldn't believe that just one tiny virus could be responsible for wreaking havoc across the entire globe. Uh, now, of course, unfortunately, we know better. We realize that that can happen. Right. And, and this book really does tie into today in so many different ways. Where's the best place for people to get Pandemic 1918? Well, you can get it on Amazon, but I'd also like to see people buy it from independent bookshops in, in you know, hardcovers. Um, it's an audio book. There, it comes in various formats. Um, as long as you buy it, read it, borrow it, get it from the library, which is always great because um, libraries make reading more accessible to everybody. I just think it's important that it it gets out there and that people understand some of the things that were happening at that period and how they've influenced what's going on now. Very much so. Very much yeah. the culture, the response, uh, the gravity of the situation, the effect on people. Like the effects of this pandemic are maybe not as bad as 19, but the sociological, psychological effects are important to understand and they'll reverberate just like uh, pandemic 1918 did too. So excellent job. Thanks for coming on the show. Again, the Thank title you. of the book. Awesome. Just like the, the full title of the book again is Pandemic 1918, Eyewitness Accounts from the Greatest Medical Holocaust in Modern History by Catherine Arnold, published 2018 in the States. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you. All right. Stay there. All right. Stay there. Stay there. That was perfect. That's 30.